Welcome back to Ether Hour, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin and a returning guest, beloved, you know, member of the World War Now extended universe, Momchilo Nevesky. You remember him from our takedown of Haas and the MAGA communist morons. You know, he's been a fixture of the of the extended universe for a minute now. Momchilo, uh, Dimitri, how are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, doing very well. Excited to hear what Momchilo has to say, and of course, the episode. Uh, you know, for better or for worse, is about one of the most, one of the most based and Orthodox Christian. I guess one of the most significant Orthodox Christians. Sec- uh, I could say secular in the way that he wasn't a member of the clergy, a member of the Orthodox laity, Codriano himself. And so, I'll let um, I'll let Momchilo introduce us to this fascinating character of the 20th century and potentially a passion bearer as well. This major figure in not just Romanian history, but I guess general Orthodox history, this wonderful example. Okay, so I know we're about to wade into some kind of controversial stuff because it has to do with like the, the F word gets thrown around a lot. Not that F word, the, the fascism F word, not the other long F word. <laughs> so we kind of have to be uh, careful with some more definitions here. I think a lot of the problem stems from, and I've actually studied this topic quite a bit, studying these various um, fascist movements or fascistic movements of various sorts. And I find that the major problem is that in the West, or at least in America, in sort of the Western uh, Anglophone uh, academic world, outside of those who explicitly study this phenomenon, when people talk about like fascism, they basically take what I call like the sort of the Stalinist common turn view of fascism with the mixture of the popular front view, um, with the mixture of the Trotskyite view of fascism. And both of which sort of define the fascism and these movements as they sort of dis- use them to dismiss them as a reactionary middle class movement that was supported by big capitalists in order to crush minorities, oppress workers, or racial minorities. I think you see this really explicitly with people like um, Umberto Eco or Jason Stanley. They have these really bad definitions of fascism and they really just muddies the water. So I think we need to all quickly want to clear up some of the terms and definitions here that I'm going to use based off my studies. I'm really going to be ignoring a lot of what these other academics, even some of the better ones, um, people like um, uh, Stanley Payne, for instance, I think he's one of the better ones who studies this phenomenon. But I'm going to say that fascism or the third position. So I'm going to say the third position as a sort of generic form of fascism because virtually none of these movements call themselves fascists with the exception of the British Union of Fascists. And even then, the buff, they were criticized for taking the term fascism, like using that word explicitly. So what I wanted to define the third position as, it's a romantic modernist movement that seeks to combine socialism of a sort that pre-existed and has nothing to do with Karl Marx with the myth of the nation and its rejuvenation slash rebirth as an alternative form of modernity that rejects the modernity of liberalism and the communistic millennium view of modernity. So what this means is that the third position is not really reactionary or somehow primitivist, like say like a Ted Kaczynski type, rather it is in a sense kind of like a lowercase p progressive. It's really a way for a group of people to be able to use technology, industry, wealth, urbanization, and the mass politics that happen in modernity in a radically different way than the way that communism proposes or that liberalism proposes slash did, since it maintains that mythical nationalist core. And now just real quick on the word nationalism, I know there's a lot of again here we have a lot of communist baggage in the west here accepting their sort of views of nationalism as this sort of bourgeois phenomenon because basically they see uh nationality as something that only rose about in 1848 and sort of that era with these sort of revolutions as a sort of merchant nationalism when i say nationalism that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about a more primordial mythical core and ethnos as people like dugan or other eurasianists would say i'm talking about something more primordial and not a this bourgeois nationalism 
So basically, the third position is trying to use these artifacts of modernity to support trying to revitalize their nation to a past mythical idea. So while it is respectful of the past, it is oriented, though, and it seeks to realize some sort of mythical past by going forward into a sort of mythical time, as somebody like Merche Eliada might say. So this isn't a perfect definition, but I think it gets at the core of what these movements were about. And my main argument against a lot of these other definitions people put forth is that they're basically just trying to find the similarities between, say, how it manifested in Germany and Italy. But if you apply the definition to Romania, as we're going to talk about here, it completely goes away, especially when we talk about religion and all these other things. All right. So having the background on fascism, let's quickly go through some of the background of the Legion of the Archangel Michael or the Iron Guard with the sort of background of Romania. So like all of these third positionist movements, they begin right after World War I. But their position, Romania's position after World War I, was a lot different than, say, Germany, which suffered massive economic and territorial losses after World War I, and Italy. So even though Italy, like Romania, was on the side of the winners in World War I, they really didn't get much in terms of territory. In fact, they felt very snubbed by their allies out of a lot of meaningful territorial gains, uh, you know, despite all their losses they took during the war, the manpower, all the resources they put into the war. Well, it's quite the opposite for Romania. So the actual state of Romania pre-World War I, or at the time of World War I, was rather small even compared to today. It consisted basically of the parts, uh, like if you look at the Carpathian Mountains, it only consists of the parts of the Carpathian Mountains east and south, making a sort of um, sort of like banana shape, I guess you could say. It only inclu included parts of uh, Wallachia and parts of the Moldavian region, with Transylvania uh, being under the rule of Austro-Hungary and parts of Moldova being part of the uh, Russian Empire. So it would include, for instance, today, the, the very large cities, or relatively large cities uh, for Romania, uh, the cities of Cluj and Brasov. Uh, both of those which were under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. However, after World War I, Romania territorially expands to be basically be all of Greater Romania. It was considered such a great triumph, actually, that the monarchs at the time, Queen Marie and King Ferdinand, were actually coronated at a specially built church for the first time ever in Romanian history. So Romania... Um, in terms of their um, royalty, they had no history of coronations, but after the peace treaty um, of Versailles and all the land, the new borders were drawn, it was considered such a triumph that they were able to unify all the Romanian people. I say all the Romanian people, but of course there are going to be some exceptions, especially like the sort of um, the Macedo Romanians or the A-Romanians, as they're called, those who kind of live in the, um, uh, what's now kind of Macedonia, Greece today. But besides that, they also unified all the Romanians. Um, and they built a special church for them and had a coronation ceremony for this. And there's actually a good movie you can watch on Amazon called Queen Marie about how Romania negotiated for Greater Romania at uh, Versailles over in Paris. But the country became much more heterogeneous, much more diverse, both ethnically with Hungarians and Germans, especially in the Transylvania region, but also a lot of more Protestants and Catholics, specifically um, Roman Catholics, because there's always been... Um, a sort of uniate presence in the sort of core region of Romania, like Wallachia and Moldova. But when they get Transylvania, they start getting more Roman Catholics as well. So the problem is, is that if you're a nationalist movement in Romania at this time, there's not much you could really call for expansion for, unless you want to go through like empire mode and, and see like where like Rome was or something like that. But under a sort of Romanian state, you can't really expand because there's no real legitimate claims that you can make left. And we can contrast this, for instance, with Germany at this time, where there was millions of ethnic Germans living outside of Germany, often under these very hostile states to these minorities, or Italy, who fought for the winning allied side for longer and harder 
and they gained very little land, and they also won a lot of land that was occupied by ethnic Italians. Whereas the Romanian state actually doubled in size and population. So Romania comes out very, although they were a war-torn nation, as all nations were, or most nations were at this time in Europe, um, in terms of population, in terms of territory and resources and all this, they actually come out looking pretty good. So greater Romania had been achieved. There was no lost cause scenario or feeling of being betrayed by their allies. Instead, what I argue is that there was a more inward turn of what it meant to be Romanian. That had to happen for a nationalist movement. Specifically, an inward turn of what it meant to be a nationalist Romanian in the modern age, despite still being a very agrarian country with very little industry and a lot of now, especially with the new land gains, a lot of ethnic and religious diversity. And here, we see the figure of Cornelio Zelia Codrano entering in the picture. So his birth and the circumstances of his family is actually a bit interesting. So he was born on what is today the border of Romania and Moldova on the Romanian side on September 13th, 1899, which is the feast day of St. Cornelius the Centurion for which he was named after. And I try to look it up because I know Romania in 1929, they switched to the new calendar, but I couldn't figure out if the September 13th, 1899 is new calendar or old calendar. Um, I try to look um. I tried to look into this, but I couldn't really find it. And I also tried to look, because when they switched the new calendar in 1929, it was not really a popular move. Um, it was kind of this very like kind of city people or these more secular people were wanting to do this move in order to be more Western. But a lot of the peasants, which at this time Romania was very agrarian, they were actually very much against this move. And I really couldn't figure out where the, um, where Code Rano or the Legion of Archangel Michael stood on this issue. And then just a, uh, a few other things about his birth. So his father, uh, Jan Kodrano, was alleged by some to be part Slavic, um, since his original surname was actually Zelensky, spelled with, a, with an I at the end, not a Y, and his mother was part German, and her maiden name was Brunner. And interestingly enough, his father was actually a German teacher, so I wonder if they met through that way. But basically, um, he ends up changing the name Zelensky to Zelia in a way to sort of, I guess, Romanianize the name, and they take a new surname of Kodrano, and Kodrano basically means like forester, but the forest part in that word refers to the forest of the uh, the, Moldavi the Moldavian region. So it's a very sort of regional name, I guess you could say they add. But Dimitri, did you have something you want to say? Yeah, I find, I find it very interesting because Kodriano essentially being such a powerful nationalistic figure in, in Romanian history and essentially being this right-wing, uh, potential, a potential dictator, if not for his early demise, he never actually comes out against the, as you mentioned, the strengthened Romanian monarchy, which, you know, had had its first coronation only in the early, you know, early 20th century, was they essentially the Romanian kingdom as a, as an sort of autocephalous orthodox entity was first emerging in the early 20th century. And as you mentioned, the Romanian national identity was also like a sort of a new thing now that Romania finally reunited with, with all of its, uh, I guess, uh, tribal uh, tribal satellites around around the region after the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell, the Ottoman Empire fell, and even the Russian Empire fell. It had no real opponents in its vicinity in the 20s or 30s. And suddenly you have these uh, charismatic figures appearing in Romania itself who want to push Romania in a certain really... I guess you could say conservative right-wing orthodox direction, such as Codriano himself, but... That will do it for the free preview of this episode of Ether Hour, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe. You get that free trial if you want to hear the full uncensored episode. This one is fantastic. We go into so much 
awesome stuff that's relevant to today and just stuff that hasn't been even translated into the English language. So be sure to subscribe. It really helps us out, and you're going to be getting a great episode as well as the full backlog. I want to thank Mom Chilo so much for coming on. We may even have to do a follow-up on this about some of the other characters. So if you want, leave us a comment. Tell us how we did. Thank you so much for supporting. It means the world to us, and God bless. Yeah. 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 Yeah.